0: If you talk to nurses or those in the medical industry that have been around death, they normally have some very interesting stories to tell. And some of them have stories about maybe a patient that's nearing the end of their life. And they could tell by what the patient says or, or maybe even a facial expression on the patient that the patient is seeing a glimpse of their eternity. Now this doesn't happen every time, but when it does, it it sticks with that, that, that health care provider, with that nurse. We have a hospice nurse in our, in our church. Um, and she told me a story about a patient of hers who was in her, he was in his mid-20s. Uh, this man was dying of a terminal illness and he was approaching the end of his life. And so because of that, they called hospice in. And she had a responsibility to, to check on this patient, to make sure this patient was okay. And one particular day, she showed up at the patient's patient's house to see how he was doing and do her daily check. And she noticed that the patient was alone. Nobody else was in the house. And when she walked in, she knew pretty quick that the patient had passed away. But what will forever be etched in her mind was the face on that patient. That patient, his face had contorted into something so horrific the only way she could describe it was the movie Scream and that mask. She said it was so terrible, the, t- the look of terror on this man's face. She couldn't stare to stand to look at it, so she put a sheet over his face. Now, I'm curious as to what that man saw. What would this man have seen that would have contorted his face to look like that? Well, my name is Corey Sargent, and I'm one of the pastors here at crossroads and we're going through a new series we started last week about watch where you were going and this series is really about the afterlife it's really about the fact that it has to exist and the and just kind of a glimpse of what it looks like as best we could tell this side of death and before i get started into the message I, i have to acknowledge that some of you here may not believe that there is a literal hell Believe there's a heaven, but only, um, the statistic I found said that 72% of Americans believe there's a heaven, but only about 58% of Americans believe there's a hell. And I think the disparity isn't only driven because of secular reasoning or, or what happens in culture, but what really shocks me is there's is disparity in the church. People who proclaim to believe in Jesus, about 85% of them believe that there is a heaven. And only about 70% believe there is a literal place called hell. Now, the reason why that kind of perplexes me is because the same source that tells us about heaven is the same exact source that tells us about hell. So if you're here today and you don't believe that there's a literal hell, I just have one question. Why? Why? Why don't you believe the word of God? Today in this message, we're going to really just answer three questions, and we're going to jump into the first question now. The first question that I want to answer is, what does hell look like? What does it look like? You see, Jesus himself, some people will say that, well, if Jesus didn't talk about it, then we shouldn't believe it or we shouldn't uh, worry about those kind of things. That's some, some reasoning that I have a problem with, and I would love to discuss it with you if you think that's the case. If Jesus didn't say it in Scripture, we shouldn't believe it. But the fact is, Jesus did say, talk about hell in Scripture. He actually talked about it over 70 times in Scripture. And when Jesus talked about it, he used a specific word. But before we get into all that, what I want to do is I want to get, set the stage with just four verses. I want to set the stage of what hell really looks like so we can answer this question, what does hell look like? What does it look like to be in hell? And the first one, they're going to be kind of rapid fire on the screen. The first one is Romans. It's chapter 2 and it's verse 8. And and it goes like this. It says, but for those who are self-seeking and those who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Matthew 8, verse 12 says, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and forever. Verse 15 of the same chapter goes on to say, And anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will also be thrown into the lake of fire. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6-9 says that God is just. He will, pay back though, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. They will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, these are just four verses. And in these four verses, we see that there will be wrath and anger. There will be darkness and gnashing of teeth. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and forever. Now, I don't think, I'm going to stop right here because I don't think that our minds can understand, can fully understand what forever and forever really looks like. So we're going to do a little exercise. If you would, where you are, just close your eyes. Just close your eyes. I promise I'm not going to hit you with a water balloon. But I want you to think about yesterday and I want you to think about the one thing that caused you the most physical pain or that one thing that caused you the most emotional pain everybody got something alright you can open your eyes back up who here said the roundabout (laughs) no okay (laughs) The (laughs) the fact is the fact is some of you have some serious things going on. The fact is some of you all have some serious hurt, emotional or physical, you all have something serious going on. And forever is taking that pain and that hurt today and then realizing you're going to have it tomorrow and that you're going to have it tomorrow and and the day after that, 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 and the day after that. For a believer, it doesn't have to be that way. It won't be that way. But see, this is why I think we have a problem wrapping our mind around what forever really looks like. And I think when we read forever in Scripture, we kind of just gloss over it. We kind of just, okay, that's there. We don't really understand it. Like I said earlier, Jesus spoke about hell 70 times in Scripture. And when he spoke about hell, he used the word Gehenna. And this word is actually used 12 times in the New Testament, 11 of which were used by Jesus himself. And every time he used this word, it meant something to the people of Israel. And the reason why it meant something to them was because there was a place outside Jerusalem. There was a valley. Some called it Gehenna. uh, Some called it the Valley of Hinnon. And to some, it was called uh, Topet, or the Valley of the Dead Bones. And Jeremiah talks about this place. And he says this in In chapter 31, verse 40, he says, The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown. He also says in Jeremiah 7:31, they have built high places of Topet in the valley of Ben Hanam to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. See, when the Jewish people heard Gehenna, see hundreds of years valley. And they knew of this valley because it was cursed. See, hundreds of years before Jesus, this valley was a place of sacrifice. Specifically, child sacrifice. People would bring their children and they would sacrifice to a false god called Moloch. And what they would do is they would usher their children into this place where they would literally be burned alive. The people of Israel knew of this place. They knew of it. And when the kingdoms were divided, there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom in Israel. There was a a king named Josiah. And instead of this place being continued to be used for child sacrifices, what he did is he turned this place into a giant uh, dump, a giant landfill. I, I read a commentary, and this is what it said. It said, The valley became the dumping ground for the sewage and refuse of the city. It was a place crawling with worms and maggots. By defiling this place with refuse... Josiah stopped the child sacrifices. Fires burned continually to destroy the garbage and impurities. Hence the name Gehenna came to be known as a symbol of punishment. The prophet Isaiah also wrote about Gehenna. He said, and, this, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die, for the fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. See, because of what burned in the valley, there was this putrid smoke and this putrid smell that would waft through the valley. At one time, that putrid smell, at others, it was burning trash. And as you see with Josiah, it turned into that. Gehenna is described in every place in Scripture as a place of torment and fire that does uh, does not get quenched. Now, I'm not sure if you all know what happens in a landfill. I'm sure it's probably not conversation around your dinner, room, uh, your dinner table at night. But what happens in a landfill is that as trash gets heaped up and heaped up on the mound, the, the, higher, um, the higher layers of trash actually develop so much pressure, it creates heat. And below, as things decompose, it creates pockets of methane gas. And as that pressure, as they continue to build up and build up these mounds, that pressure becomes greater and greater, and the heat increases so much that it ignites these little pockets of methane gas inside the mound of trash. And what happens is, is when one of these ignites, they, it, it, they normally don't put them out. They, they can't find them because they're so far deep under the surface of the trash, they have a problem finding them and putting them out. Most fires that burn in these places normally burn for years at a time. There's actually a landfill in India. I found out researching landfills. Um, they actually they just gave up. They said, "I'm not. I'm not gonna. I, we're not gonna try to put out these fires anymore because they're so deep, and they can't find them. And even if they can, as they put out one, there's another pressure point over here, and it creates a hot spot, and it ignites, and it continues. And see, as this happens." As these pockets of gas ignite, they constantly are fed because of this trash, and it keeps on and keeps on, and it continues. And this is what was going on in the valley of Gehenna, and that's why Jesus used this word. This is what Jesus himself says in Mark 9. He says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to Gehenna, where the fire never goes out. He goes on to say in verse 48, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, the word worm that he uses here actually means maggot or, um, or grub. Now, some people will say that, well, that's not a literal, literal worm in hell, in Gehenna. That's, that's not really what it means. And they, they use reasoning because in, on earth, when there's uh, you know, a dead animal on the side of the road, once they consume that, it's, it's done, it's over. It's something totally different. And the bottom line is, whether or not it's a literal worm or whether it's a figurative worm, there will be torment in hell and there is nothing we can do to stop it. There is nothing that will stop it. Now, some will say that the fire is not real. It's got to be just a figurative fire. Well, Jesus himself called it a fire that never gets quenched. And we... See, in Scripture, I've alluded to it this morning already, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The people in hell, there's going to be two kinds of people in hell. You're going to have the weepers. You're going to have the weepers. And these people weep because they know the truth. They heard the truth. They may have went to church. They may have been involved in church. But they heard the truth. And they're going to weep in hell because they know the truth. And they never made a decision about it. and They never let it change their life. And they're going to weep. The gnashers, the teeth gnashers, these are people in hell that are so angry at God. It's my life. And they get angry and they gnash their teeth together. God doesn't have a right to judge me. It is my life, and I can live it how I want. And they'll tell themselves they don't belong in that place. And they will grow angry and angry and angry. This is a place where people weep, and there's a fire. But let's look at a real scene, what I think is a real scene from Scripture, of what hell looks like. I think this is really the best view we have, this side of death, of what hell looks like. And we're going to look at the story of Lazarus and the beggar. Now, we're, we're not going to, or, I'm sorry, Lazarus and the rich man. We're not going to really dive deep into this. I just want to point out two things, because this parable is, there's so much in here, and I would spend two sermons on it. But we're going to look at Luke chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 24. And what has happened is Lazarus is a beggar, and he's outside the gate of the rich man. And both of them have, have died, both of them have passed away, pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember, in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, and now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all, this, all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that, cannot, that has been set in place that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if somebody from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now again, I want to observe two things in this passage. And I want to point out that the rich man is coherent in hell, in Gehenna. He is coherent. I want to look back at verse 27 to 28. It says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my, uh, to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they also will not come to this place of torment. See, the rich man is is coherent he knows what's going on he knows he has five or four brothers he knows he has brothers and he knows who lazarus is he still has his memories and i think a part of the torment in hell is that we will have our memories or people who go there will have their memories they'll remember what it was like on 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 earth they'll remember their family and their friends And for a weeper, he's going to remember those moments because he's going to think, what if I had to do it over again? What if I had that opportunity one more time? What if I would have responded differently in that moment? And that weeper is going to weep. The teeth gnashers. They'll think about those thoughts. They'll have those thoughts. But they're going to grow even angrier because God, in their mind, doesn't have a right to judge them They don't deserve to be in that place, and they will grow angry and angry until their anger consumes them. We're back in verse 30. The rich man responded to Abraham by saying, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Now, I want to look at this verse through a 2,000-year lens. We know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came, and he died on the cross And he rose from the dead. But still people every day are dying and going to hell. Every day, people are still dying and going to hell. This passage makes it clear that hell is real. Hell is a place of agony, it's a place of torment, and it's a place of unquenching fire. So the answer to the first question is, what is it like in hell? It's a place of endless torment, darkness, and suffering. Second question I want to answer today is, why was hell created? And for this, I want to flip over to Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to start in verse 41. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, and to the eternal fire for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And what this passage is describing here, what Jesus is talking about here, is what's going to happen at his second coming. When he comes back, he's going to gather together everybody who's still alive on earth. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Now, this passage makes it clear the sheep are those who follow Jesus. The sheep are those who know Jesus as their shepherd. And the goats are the people who rejected him. And he's going to separate them. Now, this would have been something that was very common back in the time of Jesus. Because it was common back then to intermingle herds you would have sheep and goat literally just grazing together and the interesting note that you if you read about it the interesting thing about it is the further away you get the more you can't tell which one is a sheep and which one is a goat the same is true in our world today we have non-believers and believers mingled together we all look the same on the outside but the great shepherd knows and one day the great shepherd will be the great judge And he will separate his sheep from the goats. If you look back in verse 41, it says the eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, there are a lot of movies depicted about hell today, make it look like it's a party. Satan's in control. I want to make one thing extremely clear this morning. Satan is not the chief tormentor. He is the chief tormented. He is not the chief tormentor. He is the chief tormented. God created this place specifically for him. Make no mistake about it. This isn't like a prison movie where the worst of the worst get to, you know, get to run the prison and them and their cronies while the prison guards sit back and the wardens sit back and watch it happen. That's not what's going on here. God's wrath will be poured out on anyone who is in this place and this will happen for all of eternity and we need to understand though this was not God's plan we read in in 2 Peter 3.9 it says the Lord is, is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness instead he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance see after we made a mistake after sin entered the world because of us this was God's plan He wanted a relationship with us. He wanted us to repent and come to him so that we could have a relationship with him. That was his plan A. But he didn't want to create robots. He didn't want us to force us to love him because that's not real love. He wanted us to love him through our own free will. And because that's what he created, he had to create free will to give us the opportunity to either reject him or love him. And he will allow those people who reject him to go to that real place called Hell. So the answer to the second question of why was Hell created? It was created for Satan and his angels. Now the third question I want to answer today is one I've heard from believers and non-believers alike. And the question is, why would God send people to hell? Because in today's culture, we want to all talk about God is love. God is love. We want to focus on his love. We want to focus on things that we like, right? His patience. You know, he's patient with us, he's kind with us, he's merciful with us. But there are a lot more attributes to God, and one of which is that God is holy. God is holy. And I don't believe that until we understand God's holiness, I don't think we can understand the rest of the attributes of God. Leviticus alone, God tells us to be holy 19 times. 19 times in one book, God tells us to be holy. And this is what it says in Leviticus 19 too. It says, speak to the entire entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. See, in comparison, God never tells us to be love. He tells us to love because he first loved us, right? He tells us to love. This is an action based off what God's done for us. But he never tells us to be love. He tells us to be holy. And that's why I think this is the greatest of his attributes because he wants us to be what he is. So he's telling us to be something because he is something. He's telling us to be holy. So, what does it mean? What does it mean to be holy? Scripture defines it as being set apart. It doesn't necessarily mean perfection. It means progress. But it means being set apart from the world. It means start living by God's standards and not the world's standards. Again, not that we should be perfect, but we should be distinct. We should be different. And as being different, we should start thinking different. And a part of thinking different is thinking about sin differently. And until we see how God views sin, we don't understand the love of God. We just have a glimpse, this side of heaven, of God's love. We have to look at sin differently. See, let's be honest. Most of us here today, we're okay with the idea of hell for people who are really bad, right? Hitler deserves hell, you know. Serial killers, hell. Stalin, hell. Bad leaders, all hell. But we have a problem looking at our own sin and understanding how God sees our sin in us. And we want to play this comparison game. We want to compare ourselves to other sinners. And the problem is, is the metric has been, and it always will be, Jesus. We've got to compare ourselves to him, not other sinners. And when we start looking through the lens of that, I think that hell can be an easy thing for us to understand. It can be very easy for us. Why would a loving God send people to hell? As a believer in Christ, what you're really saying is, is that you know what love is greater than God, who by all definition is love. He is love. So you're putting your earthly ideas of what love is and you're applying them to a holy, righteous God. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like pulling a tooth when you're a child and thinking now you're a dentist we don't don't get that right we don't get that right so if this is you today and you don't understand how a loving God could send somebody to hell I want to ask you a question and I want to challenge you to really think about this why would a loving God who sacrificed everything on the cross who gave us the infallible word of God that told us how to live told us about salvation, told us about what Jesus did on the cross. He laid it out very plainly for us to understand. Why would a holy, loving God, a righteous, holy God, allow an unrepentant sinner to enter the gates of heaven? See, that's the question we need to ask. That's the question we need to ask. Is why would a holy God allow an unrepentant sinner who has it all spelled out for him? See, we've got to get past this idea that people in hell don't deserve to go there. We've got to get past the idea that people in hell didn't make the decision to go there. And we've got to get past the idea that everybody that has ever lived doesn't deserve to go to hell. Every person who has ever lived deserves to go to that real place called hell because we're all sinners. The only difference between a believer and somebody who was in that awful place is the, the, is the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood on the cross has paid the atoning sacrifice for your sins if you're a believer in Christ. That is the only difference between you and somebody in Gehenna. The only difference. We've got to quit thinking that and living our lives like we don't deserve hell because we do. So, the answer to the last question of why would God allow someone to go to hell. is because they choose to. And if you're here today and you call yourself a believer in Jesus, I have a couple of questions I want to ask you. What are you doing about your family and friends who don't know Jesus? What are you doing? Are you sitting on the sidelines hoping somebody else will share the gospel to them? You try not to offend them with telling them the truth? You know, it is every believer's responsibility to, ch- to tell the truth in love. There are people that only you can influence that need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It isn't Rod's responsibility or any staff member or elder's responsibility to come to your place of work or to your family and tell them about God. They have their own responsibilities of who they're supposed to share God with. So what are you doing One day you're going to stand before God and he's going to ask you a question. He's going to say, what did you do to further my kingdom? What are you going to tell him? I don't know about you, that's pretty convicting to me. It's pretty convicting to me. So I want to challenge you today. If you're a believer in Christ, I want to challenge you to make it a priority to share the gospel. Make it a priority to share the gospel. I had a a lady come up to me afterwards and said, how can I share the gospel with this person? And I gave her some ideas. If you have a question about how to share the gospel, we have ways to help you. Come talk to us. Our job is to equip. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, this may be your first time ever being in this church or first time ever hearing the word of God. Today is the day of salvation. Know where you're going to spend eternity. We're not promised tomorrow. Don't leave here today not knowing where you're going to go. You see, the gospel, the gospel is called the good news, and it's called the good news because we have to first understand the bad news. And the bad news is this, is that we are sinners. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves from this terrible place. The only thing, the only thing that has ever saved us was Jesus Christ. He came down, and he was 100% God and 100% man. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He paid the penalty that each of us owe because of our sin. And the Bible says all you have to do is repent and believe. You repent. You change your mind about about sin, about God, about Jesus. And you believe. You put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross. You know why you do that? It's because just like the Bible talks about a literal hell, it also talks about a literal heaven. Heaven alone in the New Testament is is mentioned over 270 times. They have something to live for. 270 times it's in Scripture. And one of my favorite, or in the New Testament, and one of my favorite things to, to read about in the New Testament, one of my favorite things to read about heaven is that it's a place of no mores. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That means no more needing glasses, no more chronic pain, no more suffering, no more injustice, no more feeling like you don't belong, no more feeling like you don't have a voice. It's a place of no mores. But that isn't even the best part. The best part is this relationship that you started on on Earth gets to blossom into what it was intended to be from the beginning a real loving relationship with a loving God who wants what's best for you. And there's a moment, I call it the coming home moment, where every believer will see Jesus and you will get wrapped up in his arms. The most loving, warm arms that you've ever felt. And that's when you'll know. That's when you know it was worth it. When the pain and the suffering was worth it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you gave us that good news. Lord, you are good and you are holy and you are righteous. And Lord, I pray for heart change today. Lord, I pray that the people here, Lord, if they don't know you, they'll come to know you. If you're here today and You're that group of people who doesn't know who Jesus is. You don't haven't made that decision to follow him. I beg you, make today the day that you decide to follow Jesus. All you have to do is repent and believe. You can say a prayer. It's not about the prayer. It's about the heart behind it. It's about the yielded heart repenting in their sin. If you want to say a prayer to God or Jesus, say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I'm just asking you to forgive me of my sins. I know I can't save myself. And ask him to be the the leader and the Lord of your life. If you're here today and and you have a lot of questions about your salvation or eternity, talk to me, talk to a staff member, talk to an elder. Talk to a leader. We don't want you to leave this place without knowing for sure where you will end up. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that it is infallible. Lord, thank you that you showed us the plan, you showed us the way. Lord, I just ask you, Lord, to change lives. Lord, thank you for letting us be a part of that this morning. In your name we pray.